And here in Detroit, where so many of the tools of victory were turned out, it's in the air. All Detroit wants another kind of victory. They're out to see the Detroit Tigers, their favorite ball team. Let's go inside. You're listening to Tigers SRD with your hosts and former Little League All-Stars, Chris Brown and Roger Castillo. I always wanted to come into a Tribe Call Quest. I've never, in, in, in my entire duration of doing radio or podcast, which I could have done easily for how many shows we've done, but for whatever reason, it's kind of different when you're doing a live element to it. So, I mean, we could always, and also not to mention on podcast, I'm always afraid to get sued. But thanks to <laughs> Cave Radio, Cave Radio has the license to play any music so we can play whatever we want. So there'll actually be two hours of baseball talk, but also we'll put some music in between too. So, Welcome to Tigers SRD Live, a limited series here on crbradio.com. Live every Wednesday from 7 to 9, except for draft night, June 9th. We'll be doing a special draft show. We'll get to more on that. But the next couple of weeks or so, we'll be hanging out on a Wednesday, and hopefully you can join us. It's a state studio, too. Um, but how are you doing, Chris? I'm doing well. Thanks, Roger. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Just I was trying to get Jay Markle on with us earlier, but I was having some technical issues getting three people on yeah. this for whatever reason. But it's a, well, he'll, no, he'll join us next week. Well, it's just funny that um, that you mentioned. So back when I was briefly doing my show there at Cave Radio, um, one one episode, I was you know a novice. I didn't know what I was doing, and in one episode, I kind of forgot to turn the microphones on for a whole segment. Uh, and then that week, Fife died from Tribe Called Quest. So. The next week, all my shows, all the music I used was was tribe songs, and I started with uh, "Bugging Out" because that one begins with Fife saying, "Microphone check, what to? What is this?" <laughs> so it is so fitting. So I have started a show at Cave Radio with with Tori Paul Quest. You know what, Chris? The, the coincidences keep occurring too. Like uh, earlier, I had a buddy of mine whose name is his last name is Sweetman, and I sent him a song, "The Sweet Man" by DJ. I forgot the DJ. Some really bad '80s rap song. But uh, mm-hmm. I sent him that, and his wife actually had a similar name to the DJ. So, but uh, ob- on the obscure references, uh, coming up tonight, we'll be talking some of the local talent the Tigers may look at come undraft- undrafted prospect wise. Some underrated players, we'll start that. We, we both picked a pitcher and a batter, and a look at the 2001 Arizona Diamondbacks and Team Bill series. And one of my underrated players ties into that Diamondbacks team very well. But let's start with the madness that was last night, Chris. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of news last night breaking out. Jeff Passan was just a, just blasting out tweets all hours of the night. And the big thing right now that's going on is, well, where the owners are lying at right now with the players. And last night, the newest proposal came out, and the players weren't too happy with it. So the math, and I was talking to, I was talking to Kurt from Motor City Bengals, who's our editor-in-chief of, of the whole baseball division. And we were trying to – I did an article on it. I'm not even sure if the math was right. And it just seems like even some of the percentages don't line up either. But players balked at the pay cut proposal, which would really cut into some of the higher-paid 
players. So there's a lot of confusion there, but I, I don't even know where to begin. But essentially, the, they propose a marginal salary structure in which the lowest paid players receive close to a full share of their prorated salary in the game's bigger iconic players would not. So, and even what the player association said that they were so far apart on healthy and safety protocols, but Chris, I mean, where the hell do you begin? I mean, there's just the pales. I saw, I get the pay scale information out there. That's on ESPN.com, but where, where do you, where do you go from here? Yeah. You know, it's, this is very much uh, a situation where it's like, uh, don't, don't let a, don't let a tragedy uh, prevent you from taking advantage. Uh, it, it seems really what the, the owners are trying to do. Uh, and we talk about this a bunch. Like, it, It's hard to know what their financial situation is. We all suspect that it's not nearly as dire as they claim, but it's hard to know because none of them will show us the books. The only team that, that does is the Braves because they're publicly owned uh, part of a corporation. Uh, and we know they made something like $480 million uh, last year in revenues. But um, yeah, so it... It's this kind of sneaky stuff that the owners are doing where actually it's it's not a terrible idea to, to ask the most well-off players. I mean, it, it kind of appeals to all those of us who have random socialist tendencies, I suppose. Say, hey, yeah, you know, if you're making $30 million a year, you can afford to only get one-tenth of that while the guys who are making 500 can get almost their full salary. But – it doesn't work that way, you know. I mean, they, they signed contracts to get their money, and they already signed one to get the full prorated salaries. And so, with this new math, they're getting much less than they would have under the prorated salaries, which they already agreed to. So it, it's like double dealing, and it's kind of garbage. And what they're really trying to do is is pit the the, the rich players of uh, of whom the, there are fewer, basically fewer super rich players, against the more poor players who've been kind of screwed out of their market value by the way that the arbitration in six years of, of team ownership works. So it's really kind of diabolical on the owner's part that they're hoping to, it's, it's, uh, and my brother said it's union busting one-on-one. You, you try to try to break up the union by causing internal strife. And I, yeah, it's, it's understandable that the players are upset because everybody's looking at this through the, the lens of the 2021 uh, CBA that's going to have to happen. And we, we've been foreshadowing a potential strike for years now, it seems like. And this is only making it worse, I think. Yeah. You know what? Well, that's a good point about the union busting thing, the union busting point your brother said, because it does remind me, it's very eerie of that, because then what you're doing is you look at some union strikes that have dated back. I mean, even when there's, you almost want to, you don't want to present the, or prevent any type of scabbing or anything like that, but Think of uh, this way. For 1994, for example, the Players' Union was strong, united, and they weren't going to change. And scabs were exactly that. They were viewed as scabs. But in this case, there is going to be – it's really the case of the have and have-nots, which sounds really eerily similar to political war- warfare in some cases. And, yeah, you look at some of the – I was looking at some of the math earlier for players. So the Tigers have – and I did an article earlier today about – the, the the salary cuts and again just using rough estimated math. So right now the Tigers have about thirteen. I'm double checking this right now. They have thirteen players who make under a million dollars. So under the forty percent or so, give or take, based off what it was, based off Sport Track and based off the Jeff Passan article, Nico Goodrum would make 
makes six hundred ninety-eight thousand dollars a year would go to two hundred seventy-nine thousand dollars a year. And then another example of that would be something like Christian Stewart, who make five seventy-one to two twenty-eight. So right, right around that range. But for somebody like, for example, let's say, and this was nice work by Marty Tallman, one of our new writers over there, at MCB. Miguel would go from thirty million dollars to six hundred six point nine million. Excuse me, Jordan Zimmerman, twenty-five million to six million. Jonathan Scope, six million to one point eight million, and CJ Crone, six million to one point eight, and then Matthew Boyd, the other one, five point three to one point seven. But it was a really good article by um, Evan Woodbury on M Live. I don't know if you saw that or not, but how much money the Tigers are actually saving right now? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's that's the, the the funny side of it because yeah, that the the Tigers have a couple of all those really bad contracts. One thing that's that also was funny. I saw it. I don't know when it was a couple of weeks ago, but but they said that the uh, the highest paid player this season is going to be Prince Fielder because anybody who is retired or whatever is going to get their full salary. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's kind of hilarious. Like Bobby Bonilla is going to be one of the highest paid players this year. You imagine Bobby Bonilla sitting there right now, like he just gets that call from his agent and gets that message. He's like, "Hey, Bobby, what are you doing?" nothing just doing the same thing just probably golfing or whatever retired people do you guess what man you're gonna be one of the highest paid players you know what (laughs) and then just like that whole conversation and they're breaking down their investments again he goes really wait i'm gonna (laughs) (laughs) he's gonna make more he's gonna make more than um pete alonzo or the first baseman for the mets so is it pete alonzo yeah yeah Yeah, pete alonzo yeah who hit 53 home runs last year or whatever so bobby bonia doing nothing (laughs) it's gonna be sitting there Making more than a guy out there right now. Wow. Yeah, it's good fun. Good fun for all of us. But uh, yeah, it's it. I I think the owners. This you know it's also negotiation tactics. I think the owners. Just everybody knows how it works. You go with a really low ball offer, in the hopes that uh, either you set the stage and the players come back with something that's more acceptable to you. Um. At least I, I hope that's what they're doing. I hope this isn't just like, yeah, this is all we can do because then there's not going to be any baseball. Yeah. Even I, and, you know, I, I've been skeptical all along that there will be baseball. I, I I feel more likely that there will be now. But, but uh, yeah, it's it's you know, just one of those things ugly. And everybody says, you know, if baseball can't come together because of labor issues, it's going to be terrible. Yeah. Because everybody wants them to play. And I think I think you lose more people now than you did in '94. I really believe that. I think that you you talk about like a generation of baseball fans who you have to cultivate because attention spans are getting shorter. And I'm not just saying that to be like a stereotypical thing, but it's there's so much activities out there. And by the way, speaking of activities, thanks to the guys over at Detroit Handball. By the way, that was a. <laughs> yeah. uh, I just want before we want to move on. That was a really cool thing. So. We have a gentleman who listens to us all the way down in Toledo, one of our uh, normal uh, listeners, and he was talking about how we brought up handball, and he mentioned the Olympics and how Twitter works, and the U.S. national handball team got a hold of us, and Detroit handball folks who, there was supposed to be an event in May, but I canceled due to the coronavirus, reached out to us, and we had a really good conversation with them, and those guys were really good, and, and by the way, they have a sweet logo, so I got I to gotta give them a quick plug because... If we don't have baseball, at some point we have handball because handball is a pretty cool sport to watch. I cannot, I'm endorsing this because I mean, what, you know, I'm, I know about it, but uh, follow the guys over at Detroit Handball, all one word, Detroit Handball, and they have a sweet logo. 
with the spear of Detroit, with the handle, with handball. yeah, with yeah. the with a handball over the city silhouette of the city. It looks really cool, and they're really nice guys. And, and hopefully, give them a follow and check out what handball is all about. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've I've only watched I've watched handball. I'll watch it when it's on the Olympics because it's it's fun. Uh, and so I have a very, very, very rudimentary understanding of the game. It's it basically seems like it's he's, you know half basketball, half soccer. Uh, and there's a certain area you you can't go in. You have to throw from outside that area, but you can float in the space above that area, which leads to guys like soaring above the line and grabbing the ball and throwing it, which is fun. It feels very much like uh, one of those backyard rules that you invent because you can't go over this line because it's lava. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's all sorts of questions I want to ask. Like, can you set pick and rolls? To, can you like put spin on the ball? All that good stuff. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll get to that eventually because, uh, like you said, uh, it's it seems like a sport that's it's kind of fun that doesn't get uh, enough enough uh, publicity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, imagine the sore rate times. People like sore like so like the airtime like so it's like a good airtime is like four point five seconds. I, I don't know. I'm talking on my ass on that point, but like just something <laughs> like that where we're talking like. Oh yeah, well on that on that throw right there, he got uh, three feet of clearance, and so that makes him one of the best. Air, you know, yeah, you know, players. like somebody who specializes in rise balls or yeah. And and I I thought, and I probably way off base, but I thought there was like the equivalent of a three point line, where you like the farther away you throw it in, you get more points. But I again, I might be way off base. It might sound ridiculous, but yeah. Anyway, well, handball, handball. I know it's you. Yeah, the once they can either, I know that it's the. There's two periods of 30 minutes each, and the basic rules of handball, I, I know the basic rules, and that's really about it in terms of even, mm-hmm. like, you can take three steps with the ball without doing a dribble. After you dribble, you're allowed to take a maximum of three steps. So, so just like NBA. Yeah, but although that's... <laughs> it's just, it's just, <laughs> like you, get, you get two steps in the NBA, right, except you actually get three, sometimes seven. Yeah. Well, it, it seems yeah. like now it's uh, travel. No one calls travel anymore. I mean, when was the last time you yeah. see travel? But, uh, only against uh, like rookies and players who aren't stars. Pretty much. So the other thing that lit up Twitter last night was what the A's were doing last night as they had a tweet where or, uh, the tweet I saw last night came from an email from the A's and in which they are not going to longer pay their minor league players after May 31st of $400 a week. So that was kind of devastating for a lot of those guys. Uh, the email came from general manager David Frost, and essentially, to sum it up pretty quickly, they are they just kind of sent a kind of like a, almost like a I don't want to say a standard letter, but it was really it was a lot of like sugar coated kind of like it's okay you know like this almost like a compliment sandwich you know a good thing mm-hmm. crappy thing and then good thing again but um so essentially what's going to happen is that. Here's how the email starts out, and I won't read the whole thing. But if you if you go to at Rob, by Robert Murray on Twitter, you can find the whole thing. I hope this email finds you well and your family is safe and health and healthy during this period. This period has been difficult for everyone in the game, and I want you to know that your health and safety has been and remains the priority of all of us. And it goes on a little bit, and then you know it goes in with the COVID nineteen stuff, and then this last part of what I want to read uh, before we move on. Recognizing the hardship is not receiving a paycheck, we'd like to, for on you and your families, the Oakland Athletics agreed to continue to pay all the minor players on a minor league UPC the sum of $400 per week through May 31st. And then it goes into why they can't after that. But I did find out that the A's are late for the payment for their rent, annual rent 
statement or annual what they pay for rent, which is one point two million dollars. So and then, of course, the argument, well, look at his net worth. He's worth two billion dollars. And I put in my article how I explain how net worth works. And I don't know, Chris, I left a that was a trail of back and forth between everybody about just between hot takes and reality. And it's in in basically net worth is what somebody according to this is the what I pulled it up from from Sybil Dollar. Your net worth is what you have in cash. If you sold every significant possession, paid off all your debts. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's it sucks. It really sucks for these players. There should have been another alternative. And I can't I can't sit there and condone what he did. It really, really sucks. But at the same time, there's just a lot of that, that again, a lot of misinformation on that too. Yeah, it's you know, I, I saw that the A's, you know, they're not paying their rent or whatever it is. It's it's one of those weird things where like I can't for the life of me ever figure out why they are so poor and cheap. What what it is? Is it because they have such a lousy stadium and they have to pay for it and they don't have their own state? Like, but you're still a major league baseball team. You're in Oakland. All right, now Oakland isn't the nicest part of the Bay Area, I guess, but you're still in the Bay Area, which is some of the most expensive real estate in the damn country, and some of the richest in the country. You know, you're basically you get San Jose and San Francisco like cost a billion dollars to get a 200 square foot apartment in San Francisco now. So I, I don't get it. Like, and I think they're not going to be getting revenue sharing from Major League Baseball anymore because they can't pretend to be a small market team anymore, or something like that. So it's just, you know, like I said, it would make all this easier, and I think people would be more understanding if the teams would just open up their books and yeah. show us what their expenses are, what their revenue is, and and why they can't pay minor leaguers four hundred dollars a month or a week. Like, it's it's just. Well, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, four hundred dollars yeah. a week. Yeah, uh, you know, sixteen hundred dollars a month. Ooh, it's it's just it's so weird. Like what you got these uh, these baseball teams make it seem like they're operating like like a McDonald's or something like that, where they they have to do these economies of scale, and if they don't get seventy five games, then they can't break even. It's like those, those extra seven games or six games they get is how they make their money. It's like it just doesn't feel like that to me. But then again, I don't own a baseball team, so I don't know. Yeah, but what's interesting about the A's, though, throughout history, throughout the period of their time, even going back to the days of Kansas City, is that they have, the entire time, they've been taking revenue sharing while tampering down its payroll. So they've been doing this for a while, so it's no surprise there. But it is, even the days of, I'm trying to think of the, the, the Chuck Finley, or Chuck, um, the Charles Finley? Yeah, Charles Finley, the old owner. They ha- he had to sell players all the time to keep that team alive in the 70s. Those those ace teams that won three World Series were broken down and it had to be sold to keep things going. So you're right. I don't – that is a great point. Why – I mean, I know Oakland I, – I don't – you know, I mean, God, when we were growing up, they had just a boatload of stars. <laughs> you know, they had Ricky Henderson, Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire. You know, I know they drafted uh, most, most of those guys. But, they, you know, all, all those great teams. And it, it didn't seem like they were like a cheap – I, I don't know. Maybe I was mistaken, but it seemed like they were one of the, the the bigger market teams back then. Well, there was a lot of that talent was homegrown, though. I mean, you think about those teams, the the teams that came over from Kansas City that became Oakland in the late 60s and early 70s were Catfish Hunter, Reggie Jackson, Joe Rudy. All, those guys were all all those guys were home. Yeah, those guys were all grown homegrown talent. And that was that's what it was. What's up? I think, no, I think might might want to 
take a look at the 1988 A's or what is it? Uh, yeah, the 88 A's was the, like the super team, right? That ended up losing to the Dodgers. Yeah, I Might mean, be a good team to break down. No, that's you know what? That should be our next one. That's a, actually a good idea because the A's. I mean, even that team, like that's how much homegrown we have to. I would have to look into that homegrown talent, but I'm sure there's a lot on there. Ricky Henderson, uh, Mark McGuire. Yeah, I could say Mark McGuire, like I said, but let's see who else was on there. We got Carly Lansford. Why do I remember? Glenn Hubbard, Walt Weiss was uh, there. Luis Polonia, Dave Henderson. I thought he was a free agent, but maybe wrong. He, you Baylor. know what? He was. He was a free agent. Dave Don, Parker. Uh, who was the uh, Ricky Rick Honeycutt? That was a former Dodger, I think. Bob Welch, Bob Welch Dave yeah. Stewart, Storm Davis. Storm Davis. He was um, originally from Baltimore, wasn't he? Uh, that sounds about right. Yeah. No, but uh, no, it's interesting. Storm. My name's Storm. Storm Davis. He was a, he was a tiger for a minute too, I think. Yeah, he was. Was th- there an actor named Storm? Storm. Not not Stormy Daniels. I'm talking like Storm. <laughs> I was an actor. I feel like he was one of those '80s actors with like like the the stylish '80s mullet and the tan. Yeah, well, mm, no, I yeah, they're not to mention. I mean, the A's have been playing in that stadium since '68, since they came over from Kansas City, and for whatever reason, they can't find an issue to buy a stadium. And I think they've been plugged up by the government. So anybody out there who's more of an A's expert, let us know. I would love to get some more answers on that. But no, the '88 A's would be a good one to look at. But also announced too as well was the Dodgers are cutting salaries June 1st to avoid layoffs, which is a good idea, too. And Dodger Stadium opens up also as a coronavirus testing site. So, again, trying to see what's going on with that and trying to, I guess, streamline the whole process with that. So, But what we've been seeing instead on video, you know what I've been seeing all week, Chris, is all these ESPNs filmed the time by, they had a guy who was doing a trick shot with the basketball. I don't know if you saw that or not, where he was doing like this whole entire. Yeah. Like the three minute one. Yeah. In the backyard. Yeah. So yeah. That. Eh, it was kind of ridiculous, uh, but there's, there's really nothing on. I mean, literally as I was, I was talking to Harris, uh, former about this last night, cause all the draft coverage is getting on ESPN. And he was like, I was there to watch the whole NFL draft and it was all from home. And he's right. The, 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 the starvation for sports continue. And, it, and this is a critical week for baseball to get this done. Because if, they can get it done. They'll have the whole summer itself before NFL, and even NFL might have some issues starting. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, and, and that weren't they talking? I feel like they were talking like the start of the draft was kind of like the the what they were hoping was the day the start of spring training. Correct. Yes, spring training too. So you know that would be a great roll into that. I think you know pitchers and catchers report again the day of the draft, and they talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Then the draft's over, and then maybe. Some action soon after that, but yeah, absolutely, got to come together first. So we'll see. Yeah, so uh, let's let, let's move on to because there's there's some there's a lot to get to this evening, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll get to the draft because one of the things we're going to be talking tonight is some local prospects, local guys around the area from schools, either from high schools or colleges in the area. Some of the more uh, Memes you may have heard of, may have not may heard of, may have not heard of, especially some guys from Michigan, Michigan State, and Eastern Michigan. So, but let's continue on and let's go into really the. I wanted to kind of start with our underrated players tonight. We'll save the draft stuff for a little later, mm-hmm. but the we you and I both picked a hitter, both picked a pitcher, and I'll let you kick things off with your 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 two first. All right. Uh, so, yeah, one of the things I, I wanted to do 
we're just uh, this this isn't like current underrated players, or whatever. We just wanted to think of of underrated players in general, and so I was thinking of some players, kind of the last generation of players, I guess I would say, people who played from like '95 to 2015 or so in that that range. And I was just looking, and I came up with Bobby Abreu, who I think a lot of people, you know, remember, and maybe he isn't as underrated as I feel like he is. Uh, but I don't know if people realize just how good of a career he had. Uh, you know, like you said, most people probably remember him from his home run derby performance at Comerica Park in 2005. But he really, he had a damn uh, borderline Hall of Fame career when you look at it. Uh, and, and that's just something that, that uh, I don't know, I don't think a lot of people realize. Um, so he was originally st- signed by the uh, the Astros out of Venezuela. You know, the Astros for a long time were one of the, the best teams signing uh, Latin American players. Uh, and that was 1990. He was, he was 16 years old. But he only got to see 15 games with them in 96 at, at, as a 21-year-old. And then 59 and 97. And then Houston left him unprotected. And he was taken sixth overall in the 1997 expansion draft, which comes up again. And again, I would love to have another expansion draft just because it's fun. Uh, but he was taken by the Rays. But they immediately traded him to Philly for shortstop Kevin Stocker. And here's a fun thing. Uh, in his first year with Philly, uh, Abreu played 151 games and produced 6.4 WAR, which was more than Stocker put up in his whole career. <laughs> wow! Not not the best trade there, Tampa. But yeah, so this was this is the thing. Abreu was worth five WAR in each of his first seven full seasons, which is kind of wild. Wow. Like you just don't see that very often. He, he averaged basically six WAR per season that, that over that time. Never really more than six, like 6.8, but never less than 5.2. It's just super, super. Uh, consistent he did it seven times by the time he was 20 and, and i looked and only 24 players have in in baseball history have more five win seasons by the time they were 30 and the only three who aren't in the hall of fame are uh, aside from abreu are pujols who's going to be there a rod and bonds so like he, he was definitely off to a hall of fame start to his career even though i don't think people noticed nobody that was still in that era where, where you know war and stuff wasn't quite popular so to everyone else, he was just a guy who hit like 20 home runs and stole 30 bases and walked a ton. And nobody realized how valuable that was. Uh, he's one of just 20 players uh, ever to have seven five-win seasons in his first nine years in baseball. Uh, there are so seven out of nine, not bad. The, the only people ahead of him, you know, eight out of nine or nine out of nine are Pujols, Trout, Barry Bonds, Hank Aaron, Eddie Matthews, Mickey Mantle, Ted Williams, and Archie Vaughn. Again, all Hall of Famers. Wow. Uh, he finished he finished his career with 288 homers and four, exactly 400 steals. He actually took a year off. He retired or wasn't playing anymore, had 399 steals, came back with the Mets and played like 70 games and got his final steal. So 288 homers and 400 steals. Only five players in, in baseball history had that many homers and that many steals. Ricky Henderson, Barry Bonds, Bobby Bonds, Craig Biggio, and Bobby Abreu. So you know how I love my power speed, guys. Oh, yeah. He was just kind of an, an underrated one. He's 20th all-time with 1,476 walks and 107th all-time with 2,470 hits. So he's got two more hits than Frank Thomas and two fewer than David Ortiz. You know, two, one's a Hall of Famer, one probably will be. And his uh, 395 on base percentage is 75th all-time. Just to give you a comparison, Miguel Cabrera's is like 392 or 393. So he's, Abreu's got a better uh, on base percentage in his career than Abreu, uh, Cabrera. But I think, uh, like I said, he was just kind of under the radar, and his production slowed down really pretty dramatically after he turned 30. Um, basically, he only had two more seasons in which he topped three war at that point. And I, it's kind of hard for me to figure out why. He he, you know, he wasn't he was never a huge power hitter. I don't think he ever hit more than 30 in a season, but he was then usually pretty consistently, uh, consistently in like the 20 home run range. 
But after that, he was more like 15, 16, something like that. And, and his walks, it's strange. He wasn't striking out anymore, but his walks dropped from like 115, 120 to a season to like 80 a season. So I don't know if that was just a, an adjustment to moving on to the Yankees or what. But, uh, yeah, basically, as soon as he joined the Yankees, he stopped being that great player. Um, but still incredibly durable. I, I looked. He played 150-plus games uh, for 13 consecutive seasons. And uh, only six players have more 150-game seasons in baseball history. Uh, Pete Rose, Cal Ripken Jr., Eddie Murray, Rafael Palmero, Brooks Robinson, and Hank Aaron. I'm not sure why they're all Orioles, except for Hank Aaron and Pete Rose. But So, yeah, I mean, that's a super durable, uh, really talented player. Uh, he's, he's 122nd all-time in war at 60.2, which is definitely borderline, probably too low for the Hall of Fame. Uh, it puts him just behind Keith Hernandez. But he is ahead of a bunch of Hall of Famers, including Mike Piazza, Yogi Berra, Vlad Guerrero, Willie Stargell, Orlando Cepeda, Jim Rice, Lou Brock, Harold Baines, probably 20 other Hall of Famers. So if, if you're judging him against other players, he's, he's close. Well, well, there you go. Wait, wait. You said Harold Baines? Isn't, wait, right. isn't, yeah. isn't, isn't he in the Hall of Fame, Chris? He is in the Hall of Fame, yes. That's why I mentioned him because he <laughs> doesn't, you know. I, I feel bad because, you know, I, I have no animosity towards Harold Baines. I don't think he's a jackass like, say, Jack Morris was. But Yeah, I don't I don't either. I don't, I don't have any animosity. I don't even hate the guy. But I mean, So here's the final thing that, that just kind of blew my mind. With all those stats, 60 career war, you know, all that stuff, he only made two All-Star games in his whole career, and he won one gold glove and one silver slugger. So he just wasn't recognized for as good of a player as he was. And again, I think that's just because they, we weren't quite to the era where people were, were, you know, looking at war or war existed. Uh Never finished higher than 14th in MVP voting, uh, but he finished top 10 in war five times. Uh, and I loved only Willie Davis uh, had a higher career war with as few all-star appearances. So anybody with a higher war as a hitter made at least two all-star games. Uh, I think the next closest other than Willie Davis was Jim Edmonds with four. So everybody with a higher war made tons of all-star games except for Abreu. So I don't know. Like I said, he wasn't really appreciated in his time, and, and that seems kind of like a shame because – it was a damn fine career. He did squeak by on the Hall of Fame ballots this year with 5.5%. So just barely made it. So he's going to, you know, he'll get some more examination in the future. And I'm sure Jay Jaffe did a great job. Uh, I, I didn't look up in his uh, capsule or whatever. But yeah, I just thought, uh, I, I, I don't know, felt like he's underrated. I don't think people re- realized how good he was and for how consistent. So that's my underrated hitter. I don't know if you want, you want me to go do my underrated pitcher now too. Yeah, yeah, go go ahead and do that real quick though. Let's you know I wanted to look at the leaders mm-hmm. of that. Uh, here's the thing: like it's always sometimes in those cases where you see other players, like for example, my underrated hitter, which I'll get to a little later. I mean, this is when this is the era of Bob, so he's he's in okay. This is the outfield essentially in 2002 where he hit 50 doubles. Mm-hmm. This is Barry Bonds. You have Vladimir Guerrero, who's still with Montreal. You have Sammy Sosa. So it's easy to just kind of get buried a little bit among some of the among the outfielders out there because there's so many good outfielders in the in the in in the now I couldn't can say it in the National League at the time. So you're looking at a lot of teams that like Abreu was one of the best in terms of fielding wise too. But Moises Alou is still I mean he's I mean he's 35 at that point in 2002. But you have Lance Berkman who's in around in Houston. You have uh, Jeremy Bonitz in New York, so he's kind of getting overshadowed. His, to a certain lesser extent, his teammate Pat Barrel, Barrel, Barrel or Burrell, 
well, I couldn't say his name. Mm-hmm. Pat Burrell. Uh, Pat Burrell was also, he's in, he's going on in Philadelphia. You still have, you have Roger Stanio, New York. I mean, that, that's a, to a lesser extent, of course, but JD Drew's in St. Louis, Adam Dunn's in Cincinnati. So, I mean, he's just start, starting out. And Jim Edmonds, too. So, there's mm-hmm. a lot of outfielders in the National League to choose from. Maybe you think that's why you got a little drowned out, Chris? I'm sure that's part of it. You know, that that's one, one of the things we talk about with guys like Whitaker and Trammell. They didn't quite get quite as many all-star berths just because there were, you know, really great players. But it's one of those things where I just think, like I said, he never had those gaudy numbers. He, he, where he was excelled the most was probably taking walks, which people just didn't appreciate. And I, I don't know, to a certain extent, people still don't appreciate. You know, we, there was that whole thread. People, it was a Jed and, and Keenan were involved with, with talking about on-base percentage. And one of the guys like, ah, give me average. And it's like, oh, all right, then there's still a lot of people who don't quite get it. But, yeah, I think uh, certainly, you know, it was it was an era with, with a lot of big-time home run numbers. And he was just a, a guy, 20, 25 homers and tons of doubles and steals and, and playing solid defense and getting on base. And, and it's just the sort of well-rounded games that weren't quite appreciated. Oh, absolutely. But, but go, uh, on, go with your picture. Go ahead. All right. And, it's, and so I went with the same, uh, same kind of era here with Javier Vazquez. Um, I don't know what people remember, you know, what team people remember him most from. I, I feel like Tigers fans might remember him most from the White Sox. He had three pretty good years with the White Sox, but he, he's another guy who was pitching in that like late nineties, uh, mostly aughts era. And it doesn't necessarily stand out as a star, but he had a really a damn good career. And uh, in, in the strangest thing about him is his career just seemed like it ended way too early. Uh, he was nicknamed the silent assassin, which is pretty badass. Although uh, I always feel like that's kind of redundant. Like any good assassin's going to be silent, right? I, although I suppose. I suppose there's the political assassins who, who come and like yell something and like John Wilkes Booth or whatever and then <laughs> shoot you. But. I'm but anyway, so, yeah, expert. he was originally uh, drafted by the Expos in the fifth round uh, in 1994 out of a Puerto Rican high school. And he made the opening day roster in 1998 as a 21-year-old. Uh, and he struggled in his first two, two years, as you might expect, uh, like a six-something ERA in, in 98. And then he was slightly better in 99, though it wasn't really obvious because he still had a flat five ERA. But that that kind of became a pattern for him. He had, a, for his career, his, his fielding independent pitching, his FIP, was three nine one, but his career ERA was four two two. So, you know, his ERAs were always higher than kind of what his true talent level was. If you believe in fielding, fielding independent pitching, but uh, yeah, in any event, so the year two thousand when he really first started coming on was started like a really impressive ten year stretch for him, and he, he averaged two hundred sixteen innings for ten years, two hundred sixteen innings a year a season, and about four and a half wins per season, four and a half WAR. Uh, but again, a very uh, strange split. Um, his career, 53.7 war to fan graphs and 45.6 to baseball reference because of that, that split. You know, fan graphs does it based on FIP. And uh, I don't know, baseball reference does it by RA9, whatever runs a lot of it's uh, something like that. Uh, but in any event, so there's like an eight win spread there because of some, some really big outlier years that I don't really know how to explain or justify uh, in 1999 his FIP was 444 but his ERA was 5 so half a run higher in 2000 his ERA was 405 but his FIP was 366 so again almost half a run 2005 his ERA was 442 but his FIP was 406 
And then he had two really crazy ones with the White Sox. In, in 2006, his ERA was 476. His FIP was 378, so a full run lower. And then 2008, it happened again. ERA 467, FIP 374. So I don't think it was all luck. Like Bonderman always had higher ERAs than his, his FIP because he would strike a lot of guys out. But he also issues with big innings and with leaving. Like when once people got on base, he had a hard time shutting down innings and stuff like that. And, and Vasquez was a little bit like that. He he had a couple rough BABIP years, batting average on balls in play. Uh, 333 and 2000, which is about 30 points higher. Not not crazy. And then 2008 was 316. But his main issues seemed to be like Bonner and pitching with runners on base. He is like 70.8% left on base percentage in his career, which is just slightly below average. It's not egregious. But he had a couple years where it was in like the 60s, the mid-60s, which, you know, big innings will balloon up your ERA and, and – FIP is designed to kind of uh, act like that is just bad luck. And to his credit, he did pitch in front of some really awful, awful defenses. Uh, according to baseball reference, only two seasons in his 14 year career, did he have a, a an above average defense behind him? All other seasons, it was below average. And on, uh, on fan graphs, they do a thing where they, 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 when they're calculating war, they give you a segment for defense, uh, independent pitching basically. And that uh, they, by that standard, he is the, got the seventh worst defense of any pitcher, uh, since 1970 uh, among pitchers who threw 1500 innings. So he just pitched in, some, in front of some bad defenders and it cost him a lot of wins. Uh, uh, fan tries to account for that and baseball reference doesn't quite as much, but, uh, anyway, that's all kind of in, deep into the weeds, but he topped 200 innings nine different times, started 32 games uh, or more in 12 seasons, and threw at least 150 innings in all 14 of his seasons, which uh, which is really rare. I, I looked it up, and since 1950, only Vasquez, Don Sutton, and Tom Seaver threw at least 150 innings in each of their first 14 seasons. Holy crap. Now, Yeah, now, now a lot of that is because guys would come up and pitch like 10 innings or 5 innings or 80 innings or whatever. There was one guy for the Pirates who threw 149.2 innings. I'm like, sorry, better luck next time. <laughs> but, but still, yeah, all 14 years, 150 innings uh, every year. Like it, it's remarkably durable and consistent. Um, I think Yankees fans might disagree. <laughs> he did spend two separate stints in New York uh, and a career ERA above five in his two seasons there, but it was no higher than four, four, two anywhere else. He just, he had a, a lot of home run, uh, home run troubles in New York. I don't think that's unique to him. Uh, and, and, you know, I mentioned Jack Morris earlier, and I think Vasquez and Morris have really interesting, uh, like, kind of just juxtaposition because uh, Vasquez, he didn't pitch nearly as long and pitched in a different era, obviously, but he had basically the same war as Morris, two, 2.1 more on baseball reference and 2.1 fewer on fan graphs, so basically even. Uh, Vasquez is 3.91 FIP, uh, Morris 3.94. Vasquez had a 3.33 strikeout to walk ratio in his career. Morris's was 1.78. Like that's like I said, that's a different era. You know, strikeouts weren't as big of a thing. But uh, Vasquez is, is one of just seven pitchers with 2,500 strikeouts and, and 800 or fewer walks. And all those guys are relatively recent. When he retired, I think the only other one in that category may have been Kurt Schilling. The rest of them are like Cole Hamels and Zach Grinke and Max Scherzer and stuff like that now. So Vasquez was kind of a, a new new breed of pitcher. Uh, by the time he was 34, Vasquez had nine 200 inning pitch uh, innings. Yeah, 200 seasons. All right, hold on. Nine <laughs> seasons of 200 plus innings. There you go. 
and Morris had eight. Now Morris went on to throw a thousand more innings, uh, and and Morris was was much better in the playoffs. Uh, Vasquez was outright bad, ten point three four ERA in four career games. But you know Morris, you know had some some great performances. The four games is not really enough to to say anything. And this is just kind of the damnedest thing of it all to me. Vasquez just retired at thirty four. He wasn't hurt. Uh, he had been slowing down a little bit, but in his final season, he went 13 and 11 with a 3.69 ERA and 192 innings. It was a three-win season, three-war, and then he just retired. I, I don't, you don't really see that very often. I, I think, uh, you know, like Messina retired after a really good year, but he was 40 or 39. Sandy Koufax retired, but that was he didn't want his arm to stop working forever. I think Mark Burley was like 36. Brad Radke was like 33 when he retired. I don't know if there was an injury there or not, but like, it's just it's hard to think of guys who just retire in their mid thirties after a solid season. So it's, it's like, I just keep thinking, you know, at that point when he was 34, he, he, he maybe he doesn't finish his career super strong, like a Messina or whatever, but there were, there are hall of famers who, who had less war at the age of 34 than Vasquez did. Randy Johnson, Whitey Ford, John Smoltz. So all those guys kept pitching and getting better and, and had a nice end of their career. And, Vasquez was only 464 strikeouts away from 3,000, which is, you know, a pretty exclusive club. And it probably would have taken him three, maybe four years to do that. But again, that, he would only have been 37, 38. So it's, it's just it's just one of those weird things that I I feel like that kind of uh, took a little of the shine off his career. And, and again, I don't think people really recognized, because those ERAs were ugly, recognized the, the core uh, quality of his pitching for that long. And so, yeah, he finished finished his career 148th in pitching war, so not, nothing great. But he's 34th all-time in strikeouts, had one top-five Cy Young finish and one all-star appearance to his name. That's it for a 45-win career. And it's, you know, it's probably a classic case of a Hall of Very Good Player, but it just makes me wonder what could have happened with another three or four seasons. That's all. Well, it, according to – I saw – I looked up his uh, Sabre bio – and what's interesting was is that he decided to he just said after the exact quote was I've been blessed to be in the big leagues for fourteen years. I feel it's time. I'm glad pitching well I'm glad I pitched well because it would have been a tough time retiring on a bad note. And this is his last start, which was September twenty seventh, is in in terms of against the Nationals when he was pitching for the Marlins. And so that's what yeah, he just decided then. And then he did Represented Puerto Rico in the 2013 World Baseball Classic, but he had knee surgery presented that didn't allow him to participate. So that's what looks like what happened there. Yeah, and I don't think he even like he was snubbed on the ballot when he was supposed to be on the Hall of Fame ballot. Like he wasn't even listed as a as a player. Uh, so I, which is something I've not even heard of before. Like I thought, basically everybody who pitched or who played. Yeah, play, so players who were eligible were not included on the ballot. Javier Vasquez, the 45 career war, was not even included on the Hall of Fame ballot. You know who was? Matt Stairs, Arthur Rhodes, Freddie Sanchez, Melvin Mora. Matt yeah. Stairs? The, the Casey Blake, Pat Burrell, Jason Veritek. There's not even good players either. I mean, they're, they're okay players, but... Yeah, so, I mean... To talk about underrated, you don't even get on the damn ballot. I thought you had to if you played 10 seasons, but what do I know? So there you go. A couple of uh, underrated players from the aughts. Yeah, that was, that was a good call on, on Vasquez, too, because I do – I don't – the thing is, is I, I forget I forget his career with the Yankees. 
And I do remember him more as an expo and, and as a White Sox, too. I remember him with those White Sox teams, you're right. Especially when I was watching a lot of baseball in 2006 with the Tigers, of course. But Vasquez, you know, it just, he was one of the, to me, in an era like the late 90s, early millennium, where the late 90s was the steroid era, he kind of went back to that workhorse mentality, like kind of workhorse pitcher that would go out there and just do what he had to do. And, and for the expo, and I remember him as an expo because I followed the expos quite closely then. But I think those years in New York with the short right Porsche could have, I think, screwed him up a little bit yeah. personally. But yeah, you know, and, and he had one really awesome year with the Braves, and, and that's kind of one of the things I remember. What, what year was that? Let's see, that was two thousand nine. Two eight seven ERA, two hundred thirty eight strikeouts, two hundred nineteen inning, uh, which was good for six point two. Oh nope. Yeah, six point two WAR to to baseball reference. I remember Keith Law getting all sorts of crap because he, I think he voted for him first in the Cy Young. Yeah, he finished fourth. In the, yeah, he finished fourth in the voting. Um, yeah, so it was you know Keith Law was was an early, and this wasn't even that early, but it was still you know there was still the stats versus scouting debate back then. So, in any event, I just some interesting names to to remember. Now I'm interested to hear yours. All right. Well, mine is well. Tom Gordon. Now, here's the thing about Tom Gordon. Now, Tom Gordon is a nickname for him. It's the flat Tom Flash Gordon because of obviously the 1930 serial movie comic that was out, and he played for two big market teams. But you look at some, you look at his track record before beforehand. Tom Gordon. There's some things about him that stand out a little bit in his time in Kansas City too. So, let's start there. So Tom Gordon was drafted in the sixth round out of high school from 1986. So he was five nine. So to me, right there, five nine is it's only two inches more than me. I'm I'm a short guy. So this is an era like you think of a tall, lanky pitcher like six two, six three, and he was out there, and he was a solid starter on those some KC teams that they. What surprised me at Kansas City when I was doing the research was I realized I thought that Kansas City win the tank right after the 80s, like the Tigers did, but they actually, they finished above 500 three times in his, between 1989 and 1995 in his time there in Kansas City. His rookie season, he finished 17-9, and nine, was second in the rookie of the year behind Greg Olson, the Orioles. Uh, the double G, Greg? The double G. Double G, yeah. Greg. Oof. There so, was another Greg Olson, I thought, who was, uh, but yeah, continue, sorry. It's okay. Is it, is it the, was it 1G, was he, a, was he an infielder or a catcher? I felt like he was a catcher for like the Braves, but maybe um, let's see. Yeah, Greg Olson, eighty nine to ninety three. Hey, a catcher for the Braves. There we go. Yeah, he was a backup. Yeah, I was a backup for that ninety one team too. I think he was um, before he. I took. I think he took over for Mike Heath when after Heath retired his one season in Atlanta. But Gordon was ten and zero with two minor league teams in nineteen eighty seven, and his minor league career was pretty impressive. 16 and 5, 263 strikeouts with on three farm teams in 1988. He was the Amer- Baseball America's minor league player of the year that season. So he is in terms of his career numbers, he was 130 and 126 as a starter. So he's kind of like a swingman starter guy. And, and if you look at this 93 rotation, this Royals rotation, I for as a Tiger fan, as, as rooting for the Tigers as much as I did in the 90s. This rotation right here puts it's almost like how did how the hell 
the Kansas City, I mean, they had, they had this kind of luck, but they, they drafted well, but they just couldn't, they couldn't hit for anything. But the 93 rotation had David Cohn, Kevin Apier, and Tom Gordon. The rest of the rotation was yeah. kind of junk, but this is a, this is a, 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 a excuse me a Kansas City team that that won ninety two games in nineteen I believe it was nineteen ninety they won seventeen games and they I gotta double check the season but they I'm sorry they were nineteen yeah, nineteen eighty nine rather they were ninety two and seventy his rookie season and they finished second in the West and that was that A's team that we'll get to at mm-hmm. some point here's coming up so. And that was the architecture of John uh, Scherholtz. As you know, John Scherholtz, who would end up building the Indians, he was the architect of the Royals, and he brought him in. But Gordon, get back to Gordon for a second. So Tom Gordon's numbers, just as, I mean, in terms of even from a, from a war side of things, early on in his career, what kind of value did he have? Now, he didn't have, the best season he had was as a reliever, was a 4-0 with the Yankees in 2004, it's all-star season. But this is, again, these are some bad Kansas City teams he's on. 3.6 in 1993. His rookie season was a 3.3. 3.2 in 1994, right before he left the Royals. But as a starter, I mean, in his lowest, in terms of even like just, he was he was just above a starter. He did when we went out there. But then look at his like kind of numbers a little closer. You talked about FIP a little bit earlier. In terms of as a starter, his best season or his ERA was kind of maybe questionable a little bit, but you look at his 1997 season, rather, he was still, he was still starting games. He was still starting games. He was still coming out of the bullpen. His 6-10 and 10 record, wins and losses, this doesn't matter here. He has an ERA of 3.74, but his FIP is 3.41, and he produces a mm-hmm. war of 4.4, a fan grass war of 4.4. But it was really then the conversion to being a closer. I mean, he, missed, he did miss two seasons because of Tommy John surgery, so he missed off 1999 and all 2000. But the kind of production you get from Tom Gordon as a starter and a reliever, kind of like he was, you've seen this from Dennis Eckersley, but it, to a much exceptional level. And Tom Gordon, you kind of wonder if he didn't miss that 2000 season or late 99 when he was, he was out of all 99 and 2000, or half of 99, I should say, what he could have been in a consistent role. He did pick up 158 saves. And his career rate is 3.96. And this is during the steroid era. So mm. outside of having, let's see, he had two seasons, I mean, 1996 and 1999 in Boston, where he had an ERA above five. So take those blemishes off your record. You still have, I mean, still have a 3.96 ERA in an era that the ball is flying out and a career whip of 1.36. That's not bad. Now, is he Hall of Fame worthy? No, but I think for having a career war of three point or thirty five, to me, doing it being that's, a, great. that's great. And also, not to yeah. mention, he just just under just shy under two thousand strikeouts at nineteen. I mean, nineteen hundred twenty eight or one thousand nine hundred twenty eight strikeouts as a reliever and starter. He started two hundred three games in his career, so it's to, to have that kind of ability to go do a starter and a bullpen. I don't know. I, I think he's. If I'm going to have a guy in my bullpen that can go a couple innings and maybe in, in his like 28, 29 years old that could probably start and give me long relief, this is guy. This guy really, I would put Tom Gordon there. Outside Stephen King having an obsession with him writing a book, which I read part of it. Um, the girl who loved Tom Gordon, I think he was a solid player and really was a really good. I mean, he wasn't like a 
You didn't have a five war, like, you know, you consider an all-star season is considered five war and above, correct? All-star uh, level, I right? think, you know, all-star, you're talking, you know, anywhere from three to five or above. It just kind of depends. Like a reliever is not going to put up three three war generally. And I'd forgotten how, about him on the Yankees and how good he was there. But, yeah, I, I mean, he, what was he, a three-time all-star? He is a three-time all-star, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's a – and those are deserved all-star births. I think those aren't just like, well, got to take somebody. Um, yeah, and then the year yeah, he yeah, – it was just a damn fine career. Anytime you get – like anybody who gets over 20 war, to me, had a damn good career because, like we say, it's a, a, a two-win season means you're, you're an average major league player, and there are like 120 of those. Yeah. So if you have like 10 average major league seasons, you, that's that's – you know, you're one of the top hundred or so baseball players in the world, and that's pretty damn good. So thirty, I mean, you played what twenty twenty years? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 an incredibly solid major league baseball career. If you look at his 1998 season, which could have led why he missed all 1999, you could see why perhaps yeah. he had surgery. That was his best year in terms of like in terms of a reliever. Thirty years old, forty six saves. Yeah, forty six saves, but he appeared in seventy three games. Period. I mean, seventy nine mm-hmm. innings, which doesn't sound like a lot. Comparatively speaking to like a Willie Hernandez, who I think in 84 pitched like 120, 130 innings in terms of like what relievers are back then. I mean, considering, but I mean, here's a guy who was pitching his career high in innings pitch was 215. That was two seasons ago in Boston as a starter slash reliever. So to go out there, but having that kind of dominant season, he did where he, he had 46 saves. He only allowed 55 hits and struck out 78. Good curveball. I think he had a good power fastball, but he was. The guy who just went out there every day and, and not bad for a six round draft pick. If you look at that, if you look at that picks in 1986, if you're let's say I don't know the Detroit Tigers, just to kind of I always do this just for like just you know just I just want to do the you know let's see what, what, what the Tigers picked in the sixth round that year. A guy by the name of Rich Lacco, Rich uh. Lacco, the famous uh, right handed pitcher out of Long Island University on the Brooklyn campus, of course, because the Brooklyn campus means a lot. But then again, all things considering, out of that draft, people who came out of there as baseball players, period, Rich DeLuca, uh, Tom Goodwin, and Tom Gordon. So there you go. Originally, Tom Gordon was actually, yeah, so there you go. Yeah, Those are the guys that came out of that draft. So my next one is a hitter. And I'm going to ask a trivia question for you, Chris, because I know you're pretty good at trivia. Let's, uh, let's try this. I am not that great. Right. <laughs> he led the 90s in hits. Name this player. The 90s in hits. Yeah, let me, uh, let me cue up the Jeopardy right. music. Hold on. Let me uh, cue up the Jeopardy. We can actually have, we can actually have, uh, we can have this, we can have this, um, we can have this going. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, I would, I would hazard a guess that it's one of those, uh, I think Boggs had kind of slowed down by then, but I think Gwen was still going going strong, so I'll go with Tony Gwen. So Tony Gwen is your final answer. Correct. Okay. Uh, okay. Let me uh, see. We let the music play out a little bit. All right. Now I gotta. I want to look it up. Let's see, I, I want to at least be in the top five. Do it. Okay. Well, you might be. I might be. Yeah, it might be. Oh, yeah, it might be. Let's see. All right. So in the 90s, so 1990. All right. You were wrong. I oh, no. You're wrong. So it was Mark Grace. Mark Grace. Mark Grace. I never would have guessed. No, I would have never guessed that either. And Mark Grace led the decade in 90s in hits. So it was he had 1,754 hits. Rafael wow. Palmero, 1,747. 
Craig Bichio, 1,728. Tony Gwynn. getting a little tight here. Yeah. Tony Gwynn, 1,700. Number four, yep. All right. Well, that's yeah, good. 1,713. And right. Roberto Alomar, 1,678. So let's see. Tony Gwynn did lead the decade in batting average at 344. But in the, your face, Mark Grayson. <laughs> also, it's also worth considering, too, that Tony Gwynn's injury problems may have per- yeah, prevented totally. that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So Mark Mark Grace is Mark Grace. Like, Mark Grace is a popular player. I mean, he is he's a Cubs. I believe he's a color color guy for. Cubs radio. He was doing. I think he was doing national. Was he on Fox for a while? I feel like he was on Fox. Very possibly. Yes. I don't know. I'm not sure, but you know, here's a guy. 24th round in the 1985 draft. So the Cubs draft him on a San Diego State University, which was the same university that Gwynn went to. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So same college as Gwynn. So there he goes. Damn. Yeah. I was almost sort of right. Same last name starts with G from San Diego State University. <laughs> We're all good. And he plays anybody. You know what? He played up. He was a pickup basketball star, unlike Tony Gwynn, who was a basketball star who got drafted by an NBA team. Fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny to remember. Tony Gwynn's body changed more than just about anybody. <laughs> by, by the time he was retired, he was just a full on couch of a player. <laughs> just a just a love seat. They could hit like crazy. What's funny is when you when, when somebody brought up that he played. Yeah, somebody brought up the fact when he played a point guard, I'm like point guard, what? And then you see the picture of him, you're like, whoa. Yeah, well, he's young. And didn't he yeah. feel like new or something like that? But anyway, yeah. Mark Grace. Mark Grace. So uh Mark Grace is a guy who again a career war of forty six point four. And here's the thing about Mark Grace, like in terms of there's a lot of players in the Chicago area, whether you're a Cub or a White Sox player, they're always popular among a, a crowd of people. And, and Mark Grace was always stood out to me because with, you know, Seth Fielder being the big home run guy, what stood out to me even back then was that Mark Grace never hit 20 home runs in a season, despite being in the middle of the order bat. I mean, he was, so he never hit 20 home runs in an era of home runs, the quote-unquote steroid era. He was a three-time all-star and a four-time gold glover who never finished higher than 13th in the MVP boat. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a lot of uh, Keith Hernandez. Although Hernandez did win an MVP, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, and a lot of. I mean, he had he had four hundred fifty six doubles. His stat line with the Cubs is three hundred eight, three eighty six, and four forty five. So, in terms of a career wise, that's the kind of career you had for Mark Grace. But it's just in, in, in just in terms of WAR, his best season was his nineteen ninety five season, in which he had a WAR. He batted three twenty six. Put up a slash on 326, 395, 516 with OPS of 911. He made the All-Star game. He won a gold glove. And that, in terms of his war, war-wise, that was a 5-0 season of war. And mostly it was offense. I mean, you know, a lot of it came from that. But that's the kind of guy, in terms of even like in terms of walk percentage and always in the, in, in the 10s, 13s. I mean, his strikeout ratio was ridiculous. I mean, in 1995, Chris, he struck out. Only seven percent of the time, that's it. Jeez, you, know, you look at that. That's just, and his bat pip was three forty two. Weighted one ninety five, fifty one doubles that year too, and that was that was that missed the first month of ninety five, right? Yeah, yeah, and he, the sorry, his bat or bat pip was uh, three thirty, and then his WRC plus was one thirty seven. So his weighted runs created plus was it's just it just insane, mm-hmm. but he was just a steady guy. 
and he was just a good locker room guy. You always hear about like, him, his role on teams, which one of them we'll get to a little bit with Diamondbacks. Two thousand one Diamondbacks are mm-hmm. underrated team of the evening, which we'll get to after the break. But again, he only drove in a hundred RBIs. Just here's the thing too about his RBI totals, Chris. He never drove in a hundred RBIs. Yeah, I'm looking 98, 98. 92, 91. Yeah, that, that's. I mean, often that's. Uh, you know, the home runs probably played a big part in that, too. But, you know, when you're getting 51 doubles, that was another one. Maybe maybe he would have gotten there that year if they played a full season. But it's, it's a matter of who's betting in front of you. And then who was betting in front of him, him in those days was probably like Sean Dunstan getting on base at the <laughs> 180 clip. That those and those. Yeah. You know what? Those 90s. Like if I look at that, nine, that let's, let's look at his all star team or all star season yeah. 1995. The Cubs, he was so he had all he had in front of him. Really, if you think about it, this is Ray Sanchez, not. Not W R A, it's W E A Y. So you had him, you had Scott Service, Sean Dunstan, you mentioned Todd Zeal, of course, and then Luis Gonzalez. But that, you know, this is before it became Luis, or this is, I think, this is a different Luis Gonzalez. Act. Yeah, no, it's the same one, same one <laughs> before he figured his stuff out. But he had, he had, it was batting, this is before he found his power. This is seven home runs, three, four RBIs, Luis Gonzalez batting 290. And you have Brian McRae. Who I believe it was he is the son of Al McRae. Al McRae, yep. yeah. So you, you, this is not, you don't have a lot of protection on this lineup. There you are putting that kind of up, and that Cubs team finished just above five hundred. Yeah, they were ninth in on base percentage that year. Yeah, out of out of uh, fourteen teams. So yeah, not good on base for him. Was Sandberg? Sandberg was gone at that point. Yeah, Sandberg was gone at that point. Yeah, and for him and for a while, I remember every Cubs game that was on WGM. This is when around the time I got cable. It was him and like I watched a lot of Cubs games. It was it was him and Sandberg for a while, and then until the, the whole Kerry Wood era started. But those Cubs teams they were they were brutal. I mean, it was also it was like uh, insert no name shortstop. Like I, I remember, I remember as a kid when our neighbor before we got cable it was like eighty nine ninety, and I was thinking about those Cubs teams that uh, the Don Zimmer Cubs teams that nineteen eighty nine team that won. The East and end up losing to the Giants, and that was one of Grace's mm-hmm. first years. That team was—I mean, it was Andre Dawson, Grace Sandberg, Sean Dunstan before? I mean, before mm-hmm. declining his prime a little bit, but and I think it was Matt, yeah, Greg Maddox, Rick Sutcliffe on that ball club, Mitch Williams, the wild thing. That's we—that's where Rush just got exposed to him. Oh, Vance Law, yeah, Vance, Vance Law. Law, yeah, they did too. That's another name they had. But then I remember. It was going then going back over there in 92, 93, right around the time I got cable. And I'm like looking at these Cubs teams, like thinking, like, it, again, outside of reading the get out of the Tiger scope a little bit, it was like, okay, who, who do they have now? Okay, it's now Steve Bichelle, Derek May, and like some of these names. I'm like, who the hell are these guys? And Dawson was not, I mean, Dawson wasn't starting to decline a little bit, but yeah, it was a lot of those Cubs teams. But I remember Mark Grace, he was consistent. He just. Again, just being the, the kind of numbers he put up, you kind of wonder if he was on a good team, what could have been. But still, to have almost 2,500 hits and lifetime batting average of 303, that's to me a plus. And you have an OPS, lifetime OPS of 8. 8.825. Hey, knock yourself out, man. That's well-deserved. And I think that he, when he went to Arizona, which we'll get to after the break, at that point he wasn't, I mean, at 37 years old, he was just looking for a ring and he got it. But he was more like a, a role player, a mental or a role player. I mean, he never missed. The only season he had less than 110 games play, play was 1994. Where he had 106, but he was durable. 
and almost he had a streak, Chris, of uh, was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven straight seasons of six hundred or more plate appearances. Yeah, so yeah. I wonder some guys like that. I wonder about how they would like if, if somebody like that embraced the sort of launch angle revolution. Probably wouldn't because you know he was very successful without it. But you know, if you're hitting fifty doubles, you can probably alter your launch angle slightly and, and hit 25, 30 home runs and maybe become more of a slugger. But, but yeah, it's just it's interesting, you know, the different eras and the different approaches. Yeah. And, and it, was he a guy that would, you kind of wonder, was he a guy that, that hit it in the ground, hit it in the ground, hit it in the ground, or whatever the, what was the terminology that, that you talk about line drives and hit, hit the, down on the ball? Yeah, hit down on the ball, you know, in terms of just hitting it and kind of causing that to happen. Who knows? But I mean, to be a 24 round draft pick, I mean, that that's impressive just to come all the way, work your way up like that. And so, but we're going to take a quick break because we actually can do that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back after the break. We'll be talking about the Arizona Diamondbacks a little bit, do a team build with that. I'll be doing the hitters. Chris will be taking care of the pitchers. And then from there, we'll be talking a little bit draft at the end of the podcast. Of course, you can find the podcast on Tiger Mighty Report the following day. Of course, the music will be edited out because we don't get in trouble, but there's a couple things, advantages of having a live show. So if you have any questions for us, let us know. We'll be on until about 9 o'clock this evening. You're listening to Tigers SRD and the Tiger Mind League Report. We'll be back after the break. All right, we're back here. Tigers SRD, second hour. Chris, I think, is there. Yeah, there you are. I'm here. All right. So We got storms rolling through here in Howell, Brighton. Really? Oh, looks like uh, it is a little cloudy over here on the Dearborn side of things, and so I'm I'm actually looking forward to some rain. I'm not gonna lie, it's it, I, I, Michigan don't doing a thing where it's like 50 degrees one day and then 85 degrees the next, and so nothing surprises me anymore on that. Yeah, we, man. Well, we I, I opened up the pool the other day, and so I was like, all right, it's, it's warm. This is great, and it's not working. The pump and the heater aren't working. Like they're not getting power to it. So. And I did everything I know how to do, which is very little. So we got people coming up to look at it. It's going to cost us a bunch of money. So bummer. But anyway. So real quick, before we get to the, the whole Diamondbacks and everything, I wanted to say it was something that doing some of the prospect coverage and talking prospects a little bit. I think that my approach has been to learn as much as possible watching the game and not rehashing things. And so one of the things I'm doing has been watching a lot more and I know that I don't get technical like Jules Posner out there, uh, Forbes or Chip, but it is learning. And I'm I'm learning quite a bit about. I know the game inside and out, but just it's almost like yeah. to, Go ahead, Chris. No, I, I say that that's uh, if I, you know, my biggest failing is any sort of baseball uh, observer is, you know, I I can't and I should be able to, there's, there's tons and tons and tons of video online that teach you about pitching and hitting and stuff, but I can't just look at a guy and say, Oh, that's what's good about a swing. Oh, that's what's bad about a swing. That's what I like. Like all the swings just kind of look the same to me. Uh, and I should probably fix that, but, uh, I don't know. It's just not something yeah, I guess I've always been a little bit more drawn to the numbers. I, I, I like the scouting stuff, but yeah, but at least just, uh, I, I don't uh, know if I had the eyes. I didn't grow up watching games every day, uh, in person, which I feel like helps, but Oh, it does. I mean, but I, I going, you know, you and I have gone to a lot of games in the last three years, and I will say that just getting the gun out there and going out there, taking the notes that have that's mm-hmm. helped out. But I think just looking at some of the, I've learned quite a bit writing recently that just it is better to have, and just talk, kind of talking to, to just kind of like a 
my peers and people have given me advice a little bit. It's just having it out there versus rehashing something. And if I could sit there, for example, one of the things about Akia Williams that I noticed about Arizona State is that one of the, he had a high fly ball rate. So I was just curious if it's just because he's trying to muscle it out and he still isn't not there because he's trying to embrace a higher launch angle for more power because he lacks power. And, you know, he just he's had only one really good season of above of average numbers. So what what is it about a swing? And everything looks compact, looks very clean through the zone. But then it's like, same time, why is he trying to loft it up there so much? Is he trying to get more, uh, figure things out? I mean, his walk ratio was one the best on Arizona State's squad, which says something. So he has a good eye for it. But then, what, what, I don't know. It's just trying to figure those things out. And it's it's all part of the process. And I'm glad that it was able to continue to learn that because I don't yes am I a baseball amateur uh, guy great the scouts and all those people know far more better than I do but I do like learning the game and learning more about those little things to make yourself a better watching the game a little better where you're like oh like for example I remember you know going to Keen last year we were good the game Keen and I from Tiger the Tiger minor league report or minor league uh Tracker. <laughs> Tracker. Thank you. I don't know why I just blanked out there. I'm like, watch him hit the ball, smoke a ball right over the right center field gap. And he did. So it just it comes and goes. Not it comes and goes. Just had to be consistent with it. But I'm glad I'll be writing prospects to just kind of get more into it and uh, hopefully uh, improve my whole experience. But anywho, I just, I don't know, sort of random rant. Also, I wanted to ask your opinion about something before we get. Did you see what the NHL is doing, Chris? Um, was Does it involve the draft? They're the announcing their regular season playoffs. They're going to have a plan playoffs where they're going to be hosting in hub cities. And they're, it's going to be where it's going to be essentially a 24 team tournament in two hub cities with the top four teams in each conference playing for seeding in the first round of the regular playoffs. And the other 16 teams playing for the eight spots in that first round. Oh, nice. It's, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Uh, I saw some, some suggestions about stuff like that, but, that makes it kind of fun like that. I think there is some validity to when you've got a shortened season, just have some sort of uh, glorified tournament, you know, and, and try to make it in that case, you're, you're trying to help out the, the teams that were off to the best starts by giving them kind of a buy, if you will. But yeah, I, I, I like that stuff. I saw, I don't know if that was one of Passon's suggestions for the baseball season or if it was JT Cooper or somebody like that. But yeah, there was just basically a much shortened season that, that amounts to, a tournament or like a world cup situation. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that'd be sweet. They have a kind of like a, or even like have some of the best teams and minor league players play each other against each other and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I don't know. It'd be cool. It'd be a little bit different, but so let's go into the 2001 diamondbacks. This, this roster uh, assembled roster of players and the team that knocked off the Yankees kind of surprised everybody. Juggernaut was the Yankees. So a couple of familiar names before we get to the player wise. The farm director, or excuse me, the scouting director was Mike Rizzo, who was the architect mm-hmm. of the Nationals. General manager was Joe Barriola, uh, who, by the way, it, 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 it's, the name alone, if you if you watched baseball growing up, he was a guy who was on NBC. You saw him on channel, you saw him on any, any of those national games when the NBC would come and do like your national game. So that's my first exposure as, you know, as, you know, a guy who is in terms of baseball, I didn't know him as a player because he played way well before my time, but 
towards the any you if you look up anything YouTube or anything, but Sam Kirk Audi and Tony Kubek were part of a crew for a while in the seventies and eighties, and then every once in a while you did hear him in the and he was on the World Series team, um, World Series in nineteen eighty eight, but he he left. So, but he was in terms of just because he was always a guy you always saw on a national scene, but his son was the general manager of the Diamondbacks. So just really weird tie story with that. But um, he also, another, yeah, but sort of, anyway, um, his persistence, it was a really cool story that his um, juniors, or excuse me, his senior helped, helped uh, Kirk Schilling kick the habit of tobacco. So a smokeless tobacco and chew. So that was a pretty cool story. Anyways, I don't get sidetracked about that, but <laughs> so the manager was Bob Brenly, who was in the broadcast booth and made a successful run as the as a manager. They first got there by beating the Cardinals three two in a very good series against the Cardinals, which was better than the way they swept through the ALCS again or NLCS against the Braves four to one. But here's here's this. Well, we'll get to pitch. I'll let you start with pitching first, but just. This is, again, this is a couple years right after expansion. So the Marlins in 97, the Diamondbacks in 2001, and baseball allowed that to happen. I think that that's why expansion works well now because they're letting the teams win, whereas teams like Toronto and Seattle, Seattle still hasn't won a World Series, but it took them a while to win. But those were franchises like Toronto, or excuse me, like Arizona, like Florida, that are still around because I think baseball kind of made it easier for expansion teams. But... So I think the Diamonds were a good example of that. Yeah, and just uh, the last thing to say about the Garagiolas, uh, Steve Garagiola, the, uh, Joe Garagiola's uh, other son, Steve, is on Channel 4. I think he lives out by me. Really? That's his son? Yeah. No kidding. I did not know that. Yeah. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, there's not that many Garagiolas running around. Wow. But I never but, put uh, two. I never put uh, – it never occurred to me <laughs> – in the way, the local yeah, reference. Well, call him up and see what's going on with the Diamondbacks. No, but, uh, uh, yeah, he was. He, he did sports for a while, and then he now he does in terms of uh, more serious stuff. He doesn't. He hasn't done sports in a while. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, that, we we have a family friend uh, who's well, said stuff. A child of a family friend who ended up getting uh, like pancreatic cancer or whatever, and they had a giant uh, fundraiser, and, and Steve Garagiola was the MC for like the the auction. So anyway. Good fun. And the guy's still alive. So there's good good news there. Um, yeah, Diamondbacks, 2001. You know, one of the reasons, uh, obviously, that, you know, they won the World Series. You touched on that a little bit. And I had forgotten about their kind of walk-off win in, in the – I remember the World Series walk-off win. I had forgotten that one in the uh, NLDS. But uh, I think you, you kind of looked at this team. I don't remember for what project you were doing, but you were looking at, at homegrown talent. For World Series winners, I think. Yeah, it was for the Tiger Minor League Report. It was for an yeah. article I did for that. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, this team had the fewest homegrown players, and part of that, you know, makes sense because they were an expansion team. They're only it was their fourth year of existence. I think uh, I don't know if it's the fastest expansion team in any of the four major sports, but definitely the fastest expansion team in baseball to go and win a championship. Um, and it was considered, you know, when when we go look back at that team, I think everybody thinks of the two big pitchers as a pitching driven team, but it was really a well-rounded team. The pitching was, was fourth, I think by war in baseball behind the Yankees, A's and Cubs. But I think the offense was fourth or fifth too. So anyway, but, uh, 
We'll start, like we've been doing this kind of chronologically, with the biggest name of all, of course, Eric Sable. <laughs> or Sabelle. I, yeah. Uh, he was uh, Arizona's 42nd round draft pick in their inaugural 1996 draft. So he made it to the majors as a 42nd round pick. So congrats on that. Uh, he worked his way up to the system. Actually deb- debuted in 99. Uh, spent all 2000 back in the minors, but then came back up in 2001 in the championship year and, and had a 4-3-8 ERA and 51 innings. Kind of, you know, one of their middle relievers. An interesting story about him. The Tigers claimed him off waivers in 2002, and he got into one game that, that year. 2002 Tigers were up six, two at the time. He gave up a home run to Omar Vizquel and a double to Ellis Burks. It was taken out never to play in the major again. And the Tigers lost that game. Nine to five, uh, nine to six. Wah, wah. So yeah, 2002 Tigers. Uh, but yeah, so he was the, the first player to show up, you know, played a small role, 0.4 war. Not bad. Uh, next, next name, another big name, Brian Anderson, you know? <laughs> former Indian, uh, former Indian, right? Uh, yep, exactly. Yeah. He was actually Arizona's first pick in there. Expansion draft in 97, second overall. He's a lefty. He was taken third overall by the Angels in 1993. Uh, but he, he basically made the majors immediately, you know, how they used to do back then, and he wasn't very good. Angels traded him to Cleveland, where he was back and forth to AAA for a couple seasons. Uh, he did his best work with the Diamondbacks. Two pretty average seasons in 98, 99, and then 2000, he had a really, really good year. Four, four war season, went 11 and 7 with a 405 ERA in 213 innings, but it all came back down to earth in 2001. He was third in the team in starts and fourth in innings pitched, but his negative 0.9 more was dead last. Uh, so, yeah, he did bounce back a little bit in 2000. He kept pitching in 2005, but he was he was a key member of this team, but not a very good one. And he, the, the big names keep on coming here uh, with Brett Prins, who was Arizona's 18th rounder in 1998. Uh, so we actually have two homegrown guys here, but, again, that's early. Another guy who made uh, made, the, made his way through the system and debuted in 2001 as a, two, a 24-year-old rookie. Um, was one of the most effective relievers on their team. Basically, one of their setup man, two six three ERA with nine saves and forty one innings. But uh, he produced one point two WAR for them. He was pretty lucky though. His his FIP was four point four six. You know, almost two runs higher than his ERA, and he never even came close to that level of success again. Only through fifty more major league baseball innings. So, kind of one of those random things where he just showed up in two thousand one and everything worked out. And here we start to get to some interesting people. Uh, in, in late nineteen ninety eight, Greg Swindell signs as a free agent um he was one of the greatest college pitchers of all time for texas just just remarkable stats there i think he's still number one all time in strikeouts for the university of texas uh taken second overall by the indians in 1986 85 something like that uh was uh, had a couple good years there was really good in 88 actually and then made the all-star team in 89 and had a really good career overall but it just not quite uh i guess he would be maybe one of those underrated players but probably not as outstanding as people expect from the number two pick, which is unfair, of course, but uh, he transitioned to middle relief kind of in the mid nineties and stayed there for the rest of his career. And it was pretty good in that role for the diamondbacks uh, showed up in, like I said, this is late 98. So in 99, he had a two, five, one ERA and in three, uh, two ERA in 2000. And he, he threw almost 140 innings in those two years. So he's, you know, it's a pretty bulk reliever. Uh, not so great in 2001 again, though, four, five, three ERA, 53 innings. And then he fits in other innings the next year, and uh, that was it for his career. So this is one of those those veterans who just kind of fit into the bullpen. And here we go for real, actually. <laughs> December 12th, 1998, Randy Johnson. Uh, you know, he doesn't need much introduction. Hall of Famer. Originally drafted by the Expos in uh, 85, second round. Traded the Mariners for Mark Langston. Was still incredibly wild for his first few years, but started to figure things out around 93. Won his first Cy Young in 95 and was – 
excellent in half of the season with uh, Houston. I believe that's how Houston got Carlos Guillen uh, in 1998. That's correct. Or how, how Seattle, Seattle got Carlos Guillen, I should say. Um, and then he signed uh, with Arizona in 99 or, you know, late 98 and put together maybe like the most dominant four-year stretch of pitching ever. And I, I'd have to look it up, but uh, just insane. He won the four, the Cy Young, all four, like each of those four years, when it combined 81 and 27 with a 248 ERA and 1,417 strikeouts and, and 1,030 innings. He was striking out 300 guys every year. Um, and 2001 might have been his best season, uh, his most dominant. 249 ERA, career-high 372 strikeouts. Uh, he struck out 10 batters 23 times, He had and he had four games when he struck out at least 16, including one 20-strikeout uh, game against the Reds. Just absolute dominant. 10.1 war season for Randy Johnson that year. Just a monster. And I think he was 37 at the time. Maybe thirty-eight, just you know, one of those those rare freaks. Uh, and shortly, a week after that, maybe not not quite as uh, big as Freddie Johnson, Troy Brownham, or Broham, Brohan. I don't know how. Brohammer. It's, it's it's definitely a Broham. Uh, drafted. He was uh, drafted by the Giants in '94 as a fourth rounder. Traded to Arizona in '98. Didn't debut until 2001 though. Uh, threw 49 innings that year. 4.93 ERA. He was basically like their lefty specialist, I think. Only threw 17 more innings in the bigs. Uh, and, but he did close out uh, game six of the World Series. So that's got to be an awesome memory for him. They, they were up 15 to two at the time, but still. Uh, so and then uh, here's another big name. Young Hyung Kim. They uh, they signed him a month after his 20th birthday. So February 19th, 1999. And he basically came right up to the majors shortly after that. He pitched a little bit in the minors, was the youngest player in the bigs at the time. 27 innings that year in 99, but in 2000, he showed he had a really good first half of the year. He showed like a lot of his strengths and weaknesses. Like he, he used to strike out a ton of guys, 111 strikeouts in 70 innings. And uh, in, in Wikipedia said he actually struck out eight batters in a row twice that season, which I think is one short of the record. I don't know if, if Fister was nine or 10 in a row that he set, uh, but uh, anyway, yeah, he, he was just a monster. And then, but he also gave up 46 walks and nine home runs. It's kind of just the way he was, you know, he kind of an under, Submariner, side armor, and control eluded him at times. And then 2001, he took over closer duties from Matt Mantai, who was hurt. And he had a really strong year. Uh, 294 ERA, 19 saves, 78 appearances, and 98 innings. Was the third best war in the club, 3.1. Yeah, and we'll get more. We'll talk a little bit more about him in the playoff section. Um, Then you got Mike Morgan, the Nomad, uh, fourth overall pick in 1978. This is 2000. He played for 12 teams in 22 years. Arizona was the last. He came in as a free agent in 2000 and threw 100 innings, and then uh, 38 innings in 2001 with a 4.26 ERA. Retired after 2002, but I completely forgotten that he was on that Arizona team. Uh, and then, then the other big name here on uh, July 6, 2000, the Diamondbacks traded for Kurt Schilling, uh, who should also be pretty well known to fans uh, for any number of reasons. Originally drafted by the Red Sox in the second round of '86. Then traded to the Orioles with Brady Anderson for Mike Boddicker. And we talked about this the other week. He <laughs> traded to the Orioles, traded by the Orioles with Steve Finley and Pete Harnish in 1991 for Glenn Davis. Um, then traded by the Astros to the Phillies for Jason Grimley. So I don't know what could lead a talented young pitcher to be traded three times in his first several years in the majors. I, I can't put my finger on it. But uh, anyway, Phillies made him a starter for the first time. And then things really started clicking in, in around 93, I think. Made three straight all-star teams in the late 90s. Another late bloomer, and then traded to 2000 or to Arizona 2000 for four players, including Travis Lee, who was, uh, you know, I, I, 
giant bonus signing, a free agent, some weird thing uh, in Vincent de Padilla. Um, but like Randy Johnson, he had his you know best years there at Arizona at, at a elevated age. He was in his early 30s, I think, mid-30s. He never did win a Cy Young, which is just kind of bad timing because he finished second to, uh, to Randy Johnson three times there in that four-year period. Uh, and then uh, had a solid in half his season in 2000 and then outstanding in 2001. 22 and 6, 298 ERA, 293 strikeouts to just 39 walks. He really – one of the, the best combinations of control and, and power pitching we've ever seen. 8.8 war that year. 8.8 war and you don't win the Cy Young because your teammate is <laughs> a 10.1 war player. Ridiculous. Um, yeah, we got a couple more players to get through here. Robert Ellis, probably the most random player on this team. Uh, he's a third rounder by the White Sox in 1990, never made the majors with them, traded to the Angels in 96 for Pat Borders, and then he pitched five innings for the Angels, then spent the next four full seasons in AAA for the Angels, Brewers, Astros, and Blue Jays, um, and before signing with the Diamondbacks. It's funny, his picture in baseball reference, he's wearing a Tigers cap, even though he never played a single major league or minor league game for the Tigers. He was invited to the spring training in 1998, though. Um at any event, he made 17 appearances for Arizona that year. Went six and five with a 5.77 ERA, and 92 innings. You know, he, he pitched. He got a bunch of starts. 17 starts, I should say. Uh, he didn't appear in a postseason though, and only threw 21 more innings. So just a completely random, like, career minor leaguer who just happened to show up on a World Series team and make 17 starts for them somehow. Um, and this is the other name that I remember from that World Series: Miguel Batista. It seemed like he was the other pitcher. Um, came in the Diamondbacks as a free agent. Uh, he had, he had another like peripatetic start to his career. You know, he signed with the Expos in 88 that taken by the pirates in the rule five, he only pitched two innings there and then went back to the Expos, but then he was released and signed by the Marlins only 11 innings there claimed by the Cubs on waivers, only 36 innings there before he was traded back to Montreal. Then, uh, two solid seasons there, then traded to the Royals, then signed by the Diamondbacks. And he finally had the best season of his career there in, in 2000. One finishing he third in innings pitched for the, the Diamondbacks. So like I said, he was basically the third pitcher. Fourth in starts, fourth in war at two point nine. And I had a three three six ERA in 139 innings uh, over forty eight games and eighteen starts. Not bad. But it was just kind of weird to get to that point. You know, he he'd gone through a lot. Armando Reynoso, another name I remember, but uh, you know, had forgotten. Well, one of the worst pitchers on the team that year, but they got him as a free agent in uh December of two thousand. He originally signed with the Braves out of Mexico in 1990. And then he uh, was taken by Colorado, 58th overall in the 92 expansion draft. That's what I remember. Expansion from, draft. I just remember him in Colorado. Originally. Yeah, he was he was easily their best pitcher in 1993. It's kind of wild. He had a 3-1 season. And uh, and he, he had another good season with him, but it was you know it's tough to duplicate that success in Colorado. And then he signed with Arizona in 98, had uh, two solid years there as a starter, and then re-signed in 2001. And made nine starts with a 5.98 ERA before, uh, for missing the rest of the year with a sore shoulder. Apparently, he did give up Albert Pujols' first home run. So there's something in 2001. Uh, getting getting close to the end here. We got two names left: Bobby Witt. So perhaps one day Bobby Witt will be known as the father of Bobby Witt Jr. I mean, he might already be, but he was he was still a pretty solid big leaguer. Uh, third overall pick by the Rangers. I think we've talked about him on the show before because he had he was possibly the wildest pitcher ever. <laughs> to start his career. Um, he was third overall pick by the Rangers out of Oklahoma uh, in, in 200. He walked 283 batters in his first two seasons Jeez. in 300 innings, <laughs> basically oh a batter inning for two full seasons, but he eventually got it under control, had had good 16 year career as a, like a fourth, fifth starter. 
and it came to Arizona uh, there in 2001. Was a free agent, kind of worked as a swingman. Had seven starts and 14 games. Posted a 470 ERA in his uh, 43 innings, half a win. He contributed. That was his last season in the big league. So that's a good way to go out, I suppose. And the the last name I've got to mention here is Albi Lopez. Who's a name I didn't remember at all. I have no idea who Draft, that guy is. <laughs> yeah. well, he, he put up one and a half uh, war for him. Drafted by the Indians in the 20th round in 91. Had a, a nasty 599 ERA with them through uh, parts of five years. But he went to the Rays in the expansion draft. Love that expansion draft. 48th pick. Uh, solid for them for three seasons. Uh, and in 2000, he put up three war. But he was rough in 2001, and the Rays traded him to Arizona there late July 25th, 2001. Uh, and... and he was pretty damn strong for the Diamondbacks down the stretch. Made a 13 starts and put up a, a four ERA flat. So he ended up fifth best with a 1.5 WAR, despite only being there for like a third of the season. So that was the the main pitching staff, and I'll just run down the playoffs how they did in the playoffs here. Only a couple of them, the big ones. Uh, we'll start with Randy Johnson, uh, one of the greatest sort of postseason pitching runs ever. Uh, he actually took the loss in Game Two of the National League uh, Divisional Series, but never really looked back after that. Threw a three hit, 11 strikeout shutout in Game One of the. Uh, LCS against the Braves, then gave up two runs over seven innings to get the win in game five, and then took it to another level in the World Series. I think people probably remember this. Another uh, three-hit, 11-strikeout sh- shutout in, in uh, game two. And then he got the win in game six, the easy 15-2 uh, to two game. He went seven seven innings again. Um, and then he came back the very next night and pitched the final one and a third innings for the Diamondbacks. And when he came in, they were down two to one. So he was the the pitcher of record when they ended up winning with three to two. And uh, so he went, ended up going three and zero in the world series was the co MVP. Uh, but Schilling was probably better than Johnson. Uh, and he really is one of the greatest postseason pitchers ever. It possibly the greatest. I always say like he is the postseason pitcher that people think Jack Morris is. Um, so he's, he started, he started uh, game one in the NLDS three hit nine strikeout shutout to win one, nothing. I mean, you can't get much better than that. Uh, then came back in game five and pitched a complete game again and allowed just one run to win two to one. That, that's just, you know, talking about two insane performances. Pitched uh, game three of the NLCS. You remember it was just a five-game series. Uh, it struck out 12 in nine innings of one-run ball. So that's three straight complete games to start the playoffs. Um, and then the World Series, he gets the win in game one after seven innings of one one-run ball. He gets a no decision, though, in game four. Uh, we'll discuss more on that in a second. Uh, after seven innings of one run ball and then another no decision in game seven, even though he only gave up two runs over seven and one third innings. So just altogether, I suppose he's went four and oh, three complete games, a shutout, a 1.12 ERA with 56 strikeouts and six walks and 48 innings, like just an epic postseason run. And he also was a co MVP with Johnson. Uh, and then Batista, like I said, the, the third guy, uh, pretty strong in the playoffs, recorded the final two outs of game two and then picked up the win in game three. After giving up just two runs in six innings of, of the uh, that was the NLDS, I believe, strong in Game Two of the NLCS against the Braves, just two earned runs in seven innings, but he got the loss because Glavin only gave up one run, so that was the only game the Braves won. Uh, they tried to have him close Game Four for some reason, like <laughs> after going seven innings in Game Three, but he gave up three hits without recording an out. So yeah, you know I don't know Bob Brindley. Some of his decisions are a little bit iffy. Um, and then he was excellent in the World Series. He didn't give up uh, any earned runs in eight innings. He actually pitched the first seven and two-thirds innings of game four and left with a 2 nothing lead. And then Byung-Hun Kim. So, oh, poor, poor Kim. Oh, man, I remember uh, I remember how ESPN and just, like, the devastation and, like, there was – was there 
I guess there's talk that he was just almost cr- like soul crushed a little bit. I, you know, yeah. I mean, he was 22 years old at the time, and he had had, had an awesome first couple rounds of the playoffs. He, he uh, was was really good in the year. He was untouchable in the uh, division and championship series. No one, no one runs, only one hit in six and a third innings over four outings. Uh, and in, in game four of the NLCS, he came in. It was the game was seven three, but the bases were loaded with nobody out. And he was able to get a double play and a line out to, to leave with a seven, four lead. And then it, just the world series, man, just, just some of the most painful, like classic agony of defeat pictures of all time. So, and I, you know, I don't really blame him and I'll explain why. So uh, he comes in in, in game, game four diamondbacks are up two one in the series and up three, one in the game. And he enters in the eighth and he gets, so, you know, one, two, three in the eighth, three strikeouts, I believe. In the ninth, he gets Jeter to, to ground out on a bunt. He gives up a single to Paul O'Neill and then strikes out Bernie Williams. So, you know, it's looking well. And then Tino Martinez hits a famous game-tying two-run homer. Just just brutal. And he stays out there. <laughs> and he walks Jorge Posada, obviously because he's shell-shocked. And, you know, it's a tie game all of a sudden in Yankee Stadium. He, he probably hates himself. And then gives up a single to David Justice. So there's men on first and second. He's just, uh, you know... Yankee Stadium was going absolutely nuts. Brindley doesn't get him. He gets the strikeout. Uh, and then Brindley puts him back out there for the 10th after he's thrown 45 pitches already. And he gets two flyouts, but then Jeter works a nine pitch at bat and hits his his famous walk-off homer, the 315-foot blooper that made him Mr. November because it happened like, you know, two minutes after it turned to uh, November 1st. Uh, so 61 pitches there he threw in that game four. And guess what? He's back out there in game five. And I just, yeah, I, I understand he's your closer, but come on, <laughs> that's, that's asking an awful lot. Uh, so yeah, it's the very next night. Diamondbacks are up two nothing in the ninth, but Kim immediately gives up a double to Posada. Then he gets a ground out and strikeout. So it's looking like, Oh, he might do it. And then with two outs, gives up a game tying Homer to Scott Brocious. So two nights in a row blows the lead. Uh, and then the, the Diamondbacks go on to lose, I think in the 12th inning. Um, and that, that's the one where he's just absolutely devastated on the mound. He's like bending down and just looks completely shell-shocked. Uh, and it didn't ruin his career. He made the all-star team the next year, uh, but he was out of the bigs by 28. And just control issues kind of eventually got him. But, you know, with the Diamondbacks winning, he's not he's not the GOAT that he could have been. But, boy, that was that was brutal. Yeah, I mean, they had the mental fortitude to come back from that. So it's just goes to show a little bit about about him and just but, but being what he was 22 right you said right he was 22 like, yeah, yeah 22 it's just ridiculous that 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 says a lot about his fortitude but we're gonna i'll quickly go through the hitters real quick because we still got a little just got a little bit of time before we have to get on well, well, well now we can go over like five minutes because technically we started a little late so the lineup for the diamondbacks goes as follows in terms of just looking at the at the regulars a little bit because i just it's imperative to kind of start there so starting a catcher with damian miller First base is Mark Grace, Jay Bell, Tony Womack, 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 Womack. Come on, <laughs> I was thinking of uh, Bobby Womack. Or damn it, I did yeah. it again. I did it again. Uh, <laughs> uh, short Matt Williams at third, Luis Gonzalez, Steve Finley, and Reggie Sanders make up your outfield. And so let's start with let's start with Damian Miller in terms of he was a guy who I totally and utterly forgot existed as a player because mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where catchers. At this time, weren't really on my radar at that point, but um, he was he was really originally drafted by in the tenth round by the Twins. He was drafted five hundred twenty seven picked overall, 
And it was interesting, Chris. This was the in terms of he became a Diamondbacks regular in the year two thousand, and was kind of like just almost. He would only spend one more season with the Diamondbacks in 2002 before he went on the Cubs. It was kind of like a journeyman catcher, but he made the majors at the age of 28. So talk about you know working his way up. That's what Damian Miller was in terms of a catcher. In terms of what he was worth as a war, in terms of production-wise, not much to write home about there. In term, and I'm just trying to find a head right here. Okay, here we go. Uh, War-wise, eh, 1.5. So it's just a little bit under an average player for war. Then you go to, we start, we, we continue on, and we look at who played first base. So we mentioned earlier Mark Grace, who was my underrated player, so it's kind of like a theme I had going here. And Mark Grace, towards the tail end of his career, his 2001 season, he played 145 games, was durable, again, showing that dur- durability factor in there, and he batted 298, 386, and 466. 15 home runs, got you, played a solid first base. But defensively, this team was kind of, well, I think in terms of what I was reading to one of the, not one of the most strongest defensive teams in the National League. Jay Bell, which people remember, I remember more for his glasses than him as a player because <laughs> he was one of the regulars, but he was also part of those Jim, um, Jim Leland teams. He was drafted first in the first round, eighth overall in the 1984 draft out of Florida. And, of course, he never really spent time, he never spent any time in Minnesota. It was Cleveland and Pittsburgh, and he was signed as a free agent. So it was another free agent signed by the Diamondbacks to get him to get to just get to fill up the ranks a little bit. And he signed in 1997. So and that's I believe one of the yeah the expansion year that he signed with them. Correct? Yeah, that's 97 was the year of their expansion team. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, it began in '98. But. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So he was one of the first. He was one of the first players to join on, and and, and again, but the reason why I mentioned the, the in terms of players homegrown, because usually with the expansion teams, you see at least three or four guys, and in, in yeah. terms of you know, so I guess he would be the closest to a quote unquote homegrown guy that didn't go through the system. So I know I, 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 he started with the team, so I guess he's homegrown. It's a weird yep. way to look at it, but. Regardless, we move on. Now, Craig Council. Now, Craig Council had that weird swing. And you remember him from the 97 Marlins team. He was also part of the Rockies. And outside of one year with the Diamondbacks, his first few seasons were with expansion teams. So, but his, 2000, his 2001 season, at this point, just getting in his 30s, he was a, in terms of like a, in terms of war reference, I'll breeze through this pretty quickly. I just realized we don't have a lot of time, but let me see. So in terms of war, he represented the thir- fourth best war on the team at 1.7. Reggie Sanders with a 3.3. And Mark Grace mentioned earlier 2.4. Luis Gonzalez had the best war on the team, 7.9. And so. <laughs> that was such a monster year out of oh, nowhere. Man, look, if if the Tigers, if there's one trade above all the trades in the last 25, 30 years, where the Tigers got fleeced the worst is the Luis Gonzalez deal. The Luis Gonzalez deal, to by far, was the biggest bunch of horse crap out there. I mean, I could Did go on. Cream Garcia. Yeah, that was a trade for Cream Garcia. So the original trade was, for, yeah, that was it, straight up for Cream Garcia in December 1998 because they didn't think they could sign him again. He found his home run stroke thanks to Terry Francona, who was a third big coach here with the Tigers at the time, was launching him off the right field porch. 
and you trade him for a guy that Randy Smith had this tendency to pick up guys he had familiarity with, and mm-hmm. he had familiarity with Kareem Garcia. For whatever reason, he traded him for essentially – It's a anyway, I'm not going into it. Just a bad trade for the Tigers, and Gonzalez found himself in Arizona. He was just in – of course, you talk about the game-winning hit and what have you. But the rest of this team, in terms of the offensive talent, I mean, it was, it was Gonzalez and Reggie Sanders – a guy I know you're I know you're a fan of Reggie Sanders too because he's a guy who was one yeah, another of another underrated player. Yeah, a very underrated player. And he also in terms of like a, a power steel guy too. Reggie and we've talked about Reggie Sanders before. I I can't remember mm-hmm. the context we talked about him before, but what kind of kind of in terms of he's a thirty nine point eight war player, career war player wise, but just the way he is in terms of like his production numbers, I mean he was a guy who mm-hmm. only hit he hit home over 30 home runs just a couple times in his career, but was always just kind of a steady bat no matter where he went. And with Arizona, the one he only spent one year in Arizona, about 263, and he had 33 home runs. That was his best home run total, 90 RBIs. And he also was a guy who just could, in terms of getting OPS, he had a nice OPS of 8-6. So... That was the offense, essentially. And if you look at the rest of the lineup a little bit, in terms of other guys to stand out, Steve Finley, and we you mentioned earlier a little bit, he was a guy, again, uh, just kind of a steady presence in the bat. But Luis Gonzalez's season was monstrous. 57 home runs, 140 RBIs. He walked. Yeah, he, he never hit more than 31 home runs in any other season. Yeah. And his, those, those ridiculous Brady Anderson years. His walk percentage to strikeout percentage was 13.7. He walked 11% of the time. So in terms of Fangraphs, where he was an eight point nine player, and yeah, just a monster season, monster season, and even Matt Williams, who was kind of at that at that point of his career a little bit, Pat, I mean, he's starting to kind of. Mm-hmm. Everybody mentions Matt Williams more. You remember? Do you remember him as more of a giant or more as an Indian? I remember him as a giant. Okay, I do too. Um, for what I was talking to my brother about this, I was talking about I was talking about the two thousand one Diamondbacks with him earlier. He's like, do you remember it was an Indian? And I said, wasn't that only for a season? And it was, yeah, it was the 97 season. They lost to the Marlins. That was it. But I, for some strange reason, I thought he played for the Indians longer than that. I thought he played for a couple seasons, but it was just only the one. But yeah, again, he was another guy who started with the team in 1998, like Steve Finley, or excuse me, like Jay Bell, rather. And that was the kind of, like, you look at that team against the Yankees, Chris, it was just, it was a David versus Goliath situation because if you look at that lineup, look, look, look at that starting nine. So Miller, Grace, Bell, T- Tony Womack, which I'll might as well get to him real quick here. Tony Womack is a guy who played a little bit of everything. Uh, he was considered really the uh, another guy who came over, another guy from Pittsburgh, spark plug kind of player. I hate saying that word, spark plug, but he was kind of, he kind of was that uh, kind of player. So, um, but actually, I only have two minutes left. Crap, we have to. We have to. I have to rush this up. Essentially, sorry about that. Yeah, no, it's I okay. Wait too long with the pitcher. No, no, it's okay. I didn't realize. I forgot we have a timer on this thing. But you know what? We'll get to. We'll get to the local players next week. We'll wrap this up. But yeah, Diamondbacks underrated. Very good team. Beat a really good juggernaut team of the Yankees. Thank you so much for listening live. If you were listening on live, if not, you can find us on demand at SportsRadioDetroit.com and the Tiger Minor League Report Network. And next week we'll be going over some. Definitely be going over the draft from here on out hitting the draft pretty hard and June 9th will be Tuesday, June 9th will be our live show from seven to nine the night before draft. And then I'll be Chris. I'll probably end up going to your house, watching the draft. 
with the draft night. Probably do some Periscope stuff. See the beers <laughs> on camera. So for everybody out there who is uh, possibly stroked for that, stoked for that to uh, <laughs> stroke the beard. I was thinking about stroking the beard. That, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So normally, like I said, if you were if you want to check us out, then we'll be there's plenty of draft coverage coming your way. And I got a surprise for everybody coming out here on the Tiger Rider Report. We have a guest writer coming out. I'm not going to tell you who. So um, more on information on that coming out soon. So on that note, Chris, uh, any last thoughts before we got here? Yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah, we appreciate it. And we'll be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel, 7 to 9 on Wednesdays on CRBRadio.com. We'll see you.